Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We're in verse 21. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. I'm excited about love crumbs. I believe that God is is really going to use it to, to touch hearts in our city, in our, our neighborhoods. And it's going to be fun to, to be able to do that together and share those stories. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, this evening. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for giving us the gospels that give us a view of your life your heart, your passion, who you are. We ask that you would give us a fresh understanding of you tonight, Jesus. That we would see you in your authority, see you in your relationship with your Father, your desire to touch those leprous parts of our lives. God, we are thankful for our city, for our community, and we see so many people that don't know you that are at a place of desperation, and it's only you that could use a small box filled with gifts, but we know that you're the God that took the five loaves and two fish and multiplied it. Do you renew our heart for the lost and for our city and those that you put in our lives? We love you. We're thankful to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. One day, 24 hours, we think about what makes up our lives And it's the conglomeration of many days, isn't it? Days form weeks, weeks form months, and then months form the years. We have the privilege tonight of looking at one day in the life of Jesus. It's a 24-hour period that God gives to us through Mark, through the Holy Spirit. And I think through it, we find a lot about who Jesus is, his relationship with the Father, It speaks to us. It also gives us a model for us to invest our own days in a similar way. So tonight, it's one day in the life of Jesus. It began when Jesus was walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, saw four men, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew. Simon, who would become Peter, James and John, looks at them, says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right after this, they head to the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where we pick up in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. So notice the word they. Then they went into Capernaum. They follow Jesus, and right away they're headed into an action-packed moment. The synagogue was the place that The nation of Israel throughout the country would meet to worship the Lord on the Sabbath day. Capernaum is right off of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum would become the headquarters, the hub, if you would, for Christ's ministry. A lot of the miracles that he did, the teachings that he gave, happened in Capernaum or the Galilee region just outside. He enters in and he teaches. Mark, he emphasizes the teaching ministry of Christ, but he doesn't give us a lot of those teachings. He mentions over and over again that he's teaching, but he focuses on the action of Christ. Then they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The normal way that the teachers would teach, that the scribes would teach, is they would say, well, this rabbi has said this. This scribe says this. 
This scribe thinks this about this section of scripture and this passage. And that was what they were used to hearing over and over again. Jesus was the guest rabbi, the guest teacher. So they open up the opportunity for him to share. And he shares as one who's having authority. As I was thinking about this and praying about this, do we hold the teaching of Christ at the utmost authority? Do we hold the the words of Christ as the greatest authority in our lives? Jesus is teaching these four men a very important lesson that he is the authority, that his word is authority by this event that's happening in Capernaum. And we want to make sure over pastors, teachers, authors, your favorite podcast, your, your favorite pastor, that it's the authority of Jesus Christ. It's his word that we take our marching orders from. This word astonished, it means amazed, astounded, to be struck out of their senses, overwhelmed. You know, they were really blown away by the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's where I want to be with the words of Christ, with the life of Christ, don't you? Or we're astonished by it, we're amazed by it, we're, we're moved by it. I've never heard anyone talk like, like Christ. Remember when Peter had that, that choice to make? Jesus looks at the disciples and says, do you want to leave me as well? Peter responds and says, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. He, he'd been touched, he'd been amazed by Christ's teaching, the authority of Christ. In verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. So right away, Christ's public ministry, we find the demons, and specifically a demon here, opposing Christ. Isn't this setting a little bit interesting? The synagogue? Reading the Old Testament scriptures, praying, worshiping? Not necessarily where you would expect to find a demon. Have you come to understand that Satan likes to attend church? Demons love to attend church. How do we know that? Because it's so easy to go everywhere else but to get together with God's people, isn't it? Do you have that kind of spiritual opposition when you and your family go to the movies? Then you put all your family in the minivan together and you try to get to church and heads start spinning, don't they? Like, what, what, what's going on here? The worst is if you get an argument with your spouse on the way to church, right? And it's still going on in the parking lot. And you're like, well, honey, it's time for us to get along. We're at church, right? (laughs) The enemy loves to attack. Sometimes even when we're in worship and we're hearing the word of God be taught, it's like, where's this thought coming from? You know, I feel bombarded in my my thought life, right? Right in church. So this would be the equivalent to church of its day, the synagogue— The Old Testament scriptures are being opened, and here's Satan, here's demon, one of Satan's messengers that is trying to cause distraction and get attention off of of Christ. In verse 24, saying, this is the demon speaking, let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's speaking for a group. He's speaking for the demonic realm, saying, let us alone. It's very clear that demons don't want anything to do with Christ. Just leave us alone. We don't want anything to do with you. Also, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? There wasn't any question 
to the demons what the mission of Christ was to destroy the works of darkness. They saw Christ as a threat. Jesus is the light of the world. By the very nature that he is light, he conquers darkness, doesn't he? His existence dispels darkness and and the work of the enemy. So, So why did you come? Did you come to destroy us? They understood the judgment in Christ's coming. They understood that this was going to to mean something in this demonic realm. There's also this declaration that you're the holy one. They understood the holiness of Jesus Christ. Demons are not atheists. Satan is not an atheist. They believe in God. They understand who God is. But it's not a belief of faith. It's not a belief of surrender. It's not a belief of of relationship. It's a belief of existence. So this teaches us that just believing in the existence of God isn't what God is looking for. It's not enough to believe that Jesus exists. It's not enough even to understand who he is, but it's to come in surrender. It's to come in in faith. It's to to come in relationship. James tells us this in chapter 2, the book of James. It says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So James is using the demons of an example of faith that's dead. And saying true saving faith should result in works. Not that the works save us, but it's evidence that we have a relationship with God. Not perfection, but a transformed life, a touched life. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. The word be quiet means be muzzled or silenced. Saying that's enough out of you today. It's enough distraction out of you and just stops the words of this demon also says, I want you to come out of this man. So there's a man at the synagogue that's demon-possessed. And we'll find this throughout the ministry of Christ, that he's encountering demon-possessed people and casting out the, the demon out of this individual. See the absolute power that Jesus has over this demon. We don't find Jesus struggling. We don't find Jesus intimidated. This would be a little bit intimidating. I mean, If you came in contact with a demon-possessed person, it'd be intimidating. Jesus isn't intimidated. This isn't a a new thing that he doesn't know anything about. And he shows his absolute authority to silence this demon and also to cast out the demon. In the book of Colossians, it tells us of the demonic realm, we're studying it on Wednesday nights, that Jesus has defeated them and made a public spectacle, a public display of it. So they already have been defeated at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he has humiliated them. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out. So the demon comes out with display, causing the person to convulse, let out this shriek, let out this scream, and then the demon has left the the person. What is one of Satan's missions? He wants us to live in fear. You know, And this could easily cause people to, to respond in fear. So even at the last moment, the demon's trying to get a last word. Amazing display to be able to behold. 
In verse 27, then they were all amazed. This is double amazement. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and that they obey him. So it's on a normal day at church. <laughs> the synagogue service had its liturgy, and all liturgy means is the order of service. You know, a lot of times, non-denominational churches pride themselves in not having liturgy, but we have liturgy. We have order of service, and we tend to do it the same way every time, right? And so they're coming to the synagogue service, and they're, they're doing it the way they always do it. But here's this new teacher, this guest teacher. You know what it's like when kind of a guest teacher's here? You kind of sit a little bit skeptical, and you're like, who is this guy? You know, am I going to like him, or... I might find a reason to leave early, come back next week. And all this is happening. They're sizing up Jesus. He's from Nazareth, just down the road, carpenter. Then he begins to speak, and there's no boring quotes. He's not quoting this guy and quoting that guy, and he, he's teaching with authority. And very, very quickly, they're amazed. It's one of those teachings where grab their hearts and grab their attention, and then all of a sudden, this this demon begins to speak. It's clearly not this man's voice. It's, it's a demon that is having this conversation with Jesus. Jesus casts him out, and now they're completely amazed. I think that Andrew and Peter, James and John, maybe were having a couple of thoughts. The first was, what did we get ourselves into? We just signed up to follow this guy. And the second thought was probably, this is really cool. I think we picked the right guy to follow. You know, I'm really excited as well. Verse 28, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. News travels fast. It says that Jesus becomes famous. As we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, the fame didn't result in disciples, committed followers of Jesus Christ. The crowds love to come around Christ to experience healing, to experience demon people that were demon-possessed, to have victory, to get a free meal, but not necessarily to follow Christ and recognize that he's God. There's a worship song that talks about, and it's not one of my favorite worship songs, us making God famous, and I don't really like it. Because Jesus was famous and it didn't result in followers. And I don't think God's concerned with trying to be famous. And I get the heart of the song. It's like, it's really kind trying to express, to, to declare God's glory. But it's saying we want to make, make God famous. And, and what Jesus is concerned about is he wants followers. And this buzz that's around the life of Jesus Christ, though it was exciting... And this, this seems like, wow, he, his fame has spread out through the region. If the next verse read that a bunch of people decided to follow Christ, that would be incredible. But you contrast this with John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus gives a hard teaching, and nobody wanted to follow him. Like, yeah, for, forget this, you know. That this isn't the guy that, that we, we want to follow. So, so Jesus is a lot more than just a cultural phenomenon. He's, he's a lot more than just what gets a bunch of people's attention and they think, oh, this, this is going to make my, my life better. He's king of kings and he's, he's lord of lords. 
In verse 29, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. These guys grew up together on the Sea of Galilee. There's archaeological ruins of Capernaum, and just outside of the synagogue, you have all of these homes. So they're walking literally right out of the synagogue where all this has taken place, and they're going in to the home of Peter and the home of, of Andrew. And James and John come in as well. They open up their home to Jesus Christ. And I think this may seem incredibly simple, but may we remember to open up our homes to Christ. Open up your apartment to Christ. Say, Jesus, I want you to dwell here. I want you to be the guest of honor. I want you to be present in my home. As there are things in my home that don't glorify you and don't, don't please you, And some radical things happen as Peter opens up his home to Jesus Christ. As you follow this through the Gospel of Mark, it appears that several times in the Gospels, ministry happens in a home inside of Capernaum, and most likely it was always Peter's house. It probably wasn't somebody somebody else's house. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's there's a home in Capernaum, we'll find next week, that gets the roof ripped off. That's probably Peter's house. When you look at chapter 9, verse 33, it also mentions a home in Capernaum. So this became a place where Jesus always knew that he was welcome. The disciples are going to grow. It's not going to just be four, it's going to be 12. They probably fed the, the 12 disciples as well. We see a similar example closer to Jerusalem in Bethany with Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha opened their home to Jesus, and when Jesus was in that region, it seemed like he was always welcome to come and hang there. Wouldn't that be cool if that's how Jesus felt about our homes? It's like, yeah, man, I know I'm at home there. I know they want me to be there. I know that I'm the guest of honor in that place. So they're piling into Peter's house. But Simon's wife, I don't want you to miss this, Simon's name is changed to Peter later in the Gospels. So when we read of Simon, we're talking of Peter. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. This is a small miracle because Peter cares about his (laughs) mother-in-law. He's not like, oh, she's sick. Don't worry about her, (laughs) you know. Let's Let's just keep hanging out, you know. He's like, finds out that she's sick, that she's got a fever, and they bring it to Christ's attention. And I think that's important in this passage, in this chapter as we we read through it. We're going to find people bringing their situation, bringing their desperation to Christ. There's something about that in the heart of God where he wants us to to approach him. Jesus is God. He knows that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, but he responds when the need is brought to him. If we can go on a little rabbit trail for just uh, maybe two minutes, can we do it? Can I spark your imagination a little bit? There's a lot of details that we don't get in the Gospels. All of a sudden, now we know that Peter is what? He's married. He's got a mother-in-law, so he has to be married. He decides to follow Christ, and we don't get all of the details of how that affected his marriage. We don't know how his wife responds we can have a good idea that she responded well because she wants Jesus in the house. And the whole family is willing for for Christ to to come in. Peter's going all over the place with Christ, isn't he? 
Well, how does that work out in the family dynamic? Who knows? We don't get those details. They probably have kids. How did it affect the kids? None of that. All that's just kind of left out of the details and the narratives of the gospel. But I know it's a good thing to welcome Christ into your home. I know it's going to impact your spouse. I know it's going to impact your kids. But God, for some reason in his wisdom, he leaves out all of the details in that regard. And oftentimes when I'm reading the gospels, I'm like, I just want to know a little bit more. Like, give me the expanded version of that conversation with Peter when he came home. He's like, I'm not fishing anymore. She's like, what? Yep. I know it pays pretty well, and, but there's a big life change that's happened. I'm, I'm following this carpenter slash rabbi, and I'm just going to follow him. Well, Peter, you're not the very articulate type. Are you picturing yourself to follow in his footsteps and be a teacher? I don't know, but I'm just, I'm just going to follow him. Okay, you know. So it kind of speaks to the amazing move of God that was, was happening at, at this moment. In verse 31, it says, So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she served them. So we see the care of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. As she is sick with a fever, he comes right to her and he cares for her. He reaches down and he grabs her hand and he lifts her up. It says, by the hand, and he lifted her up. Every detail in scripture is important. Jesus is the express image of the Father. We see the kindness of God. We see the kindness of the Father, giving that loving care. Church, it feels so wonderful when we're cared by God that way. And God uses us to touch others when we show this kind of kindness to others. When we stop and realize, man, someone's sick. They they got a fever. They don't feel well. I'm going to reach out and grab their hand, and I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to give them that that kindness that Christ has extended to me. And she's healed. Once again, we find the word immediately. Already in this chapter, we've read it so many times, immediately. God is moving. God's doing things. God cares about the big things in our lives, but he also cares about the small things. This fever may have been a big issue. You go to third world countries today, and if somebody has a fever, they could be on their deathbed. So it's not necessarily a small thing, but it could be a small thing. We don't know. She maybe has got a very serious fever that's life-threatening, or she's got a mild fever and she's not feeling very well. We don't know. But God cares about it either way. In the big scheme of things, it would seem like a fever is not that big a deal to God. How many times do we not bring something in our lives to the Lord because we go, he's got so much more to worry about. But if you think about God and everything that's before him, none of it stresses him out. He's not like us. We're not God. He's not going, I'm so busy right now. Like, don't bring a fever to me. Do you realize I'm worried about ISIS over there in the Middle East? Just take a number, you know. He's not stressed about any of it. And he's wanting us to bring all of those cares and concerns What does she do with her health at the end of verse 31? She serves. She serves Jesus and the rest that are there, the disciples. If we're desiring a healing from the Lord, what's the purpose for it? Is it for the purpose of saying, God, I want to serve you. Lord, I'd love to be healthy and feel healthy so so that I could bring you glory and I could serve you. And God does desire to bring healing in our lives. Does he always heal? No. No. Does he heal sometimes? Yes. 
Will he bring the ultimate healing when we go to heaven? Absolutely. But he delights for us to bring the need to him. So you're following the, the progression of the day. Started with calling the disciples, then goes to the synagogue, teaches, casts out a demon, comes to Peter's house, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and now it's evening. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Why did this happen? Because now word about Christ has traveled from his teaching and from the man who was demon-possessed where he cast out the demon. And how did they respond? They brought all who were sick and all who were demon-possessed. Why did they wait till the evening? It's very important. When the sun had set, because it's the Sabbath. They can't travel until the Sabbath is done. The Sabbath ends when the sun sets. Imagine for Christ. He's looking out for the disciples, the four of them at this point, and they see all these that are demon-possessed, all these that are sick. Wouldn't it be wonderful in our lives and in our community if we understood that we could bring our desperation to Christ and the community realized they could bring their desperation to Christ? What if that's the word that got out about Jesus? You know what? You can bring your crazy uncle to Jesus. He'll know something to do with him, you know? Man, you're desperate, you're broken, you're depressed. You need to go to Jesus. You feel the enemy attacking you, you need, you need to come to Jesus. You, you get the idea. That's the word that got out. Is, yeah, bring the broken. Bring the crazy, bring the sick, bring them all to Jesus. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and didn't allow the demons to speak because they knew him. The idea here in verse 34 is it's personal. We don't see Jesus speaking one word and saying, okay, everybody that's got a physical sickness, you raise your hand. I'm going to have one prayer for all you guys, and then you're all healed. All right, everybody that's demon-possessed, you know who you are. You're, you're, okay, you guys raise your hands. Let's have one prayer for all you guys. All right, evening's done. God bless you guys. Have a great, great night. One by one, he's praying for those that are sick. One by one, he's praying for, for the demon-possessed. And they're getting healed. And many are healed. And many that are demon-possessed are, are cast out. So we start to have an understanding that the demonic realm is much more real than we would tend to give it credit for. There's a lot of demonic activity happening. There's a lot of people that are, that are demon-possessed. Now in the morning, we're, we're going to get a full 24 hours of, of Christ's life. Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. If we were Christ, we're thinking this is a great morning to hit the snooze button. He has had a long day. Called disciples to follow him, taught in the synagogue, cast out a demon, healed a mother-in-law. Whew! Then the whole city shows up at the door of Peter's house, praying, 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 ministering, ministering, ministering. I bet he probably got to bed one, two or in the morning. They didn't even show up until the sun was set. They didn't even get there until it was bedtime. And he chooses to get up early in the morning, go to a solitary place to pray. 
Jesus understands where the true source of refreshment and strength comes from. It's fellowship with the Father. Because remember, he's all God, but he's all man. Humanity. He's dealing with his humanity. Never sinned, but we know from the Gospels that there was times where he was tired. There's times that he was hungry. So it wasn't easy for him to wake up. It wasn't like, oh, I'm God, so so easy for me to get up, you know. He was wrestling with his humanity. He needed to be refreshed. He needed to be strengthened. It's so easy after a long day of pouring out to others for us to go, oh, I'm going to skip my devotions today. I'm going to skip my prayer time today. I'm, I'm going to skip rising up, up early. That's where his refreshment came from. I think also this shows us how much that he loved and he longed for fellowship with the Father. They've enjoyed fellowship together for all of eternity past. They'll enjoy it for all in the future. You'd think of the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ as so short that he'd spend all of his time with people. But no, he's showing us the greatest thing, and that's fellowship with the Father. Why does he go to a solitary place? Because in isolation, in privacy, there's intimacy, isn't there? If my wife and I are having a really good conversation with one another where we're sharing our hearts, we don't do it here in the sanctuary. You probably don't either, right? You, you do it alone and you pour out your heart. And those really good conversations with God, they come when we're alone with, with the Lord. At our staff retreat, we talked a lot about prayer and being revived in the presence of God. And, and God's stirring us as a staff to, to move deeper in prayer. And I think it's more about relationship with the Father than anything else. We're taking more time on Wednesdays to, to pray together as a staff and breaking from our, our normal routine. There's a lot here. And it doesn't matter what time of the day it is necessarily. There's a benefit to it in the morning because we get the marching orders from, from the Lord. But there was times that Jesus stayed up all night. It was late at night, and he's like, I'm going to go pray. I picture Christ saying, guys, you know what? Just count me out on lunch. I'm going to go meet with the Father. But it was probably more like, oh, where did Jesus go? Oh, yeah, he's praying. He's spending time with the Father. He, he's skipping lunch right now. And you take those moments as the Spirit leads and get up early, stay up late, take a lunch hour, go for a drive, that solitary place to fellowship with the Father. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Can, can you imagine Peter? They all show up back at his house early in the morning, wanting to know where Jesus is. He's like, I'm new on the job. I don't even have 24 hours into this. I don't know what to do. We got to find him. We got to find him fast. So they go searching for him. They go looking for him. And they finally find him. And they say, hey, look, everybody's looking for you. You need to come and you need to minister to them and, and teach and, and preach and heal and do all these things. But he said to them, let us go into the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. How did Jesus know that this was what he needed to do? It came out of his time with the Father. He got direction from the Father. He wasn't to stay in one place. He was to go to the next town and preach there as well. Jesus didn't live out of necessity. He lived out of will of the Father. One day in the life of Jesus, if we got this one lesson, 
we'd be set free and so much more effective. We feel oftentimes as people and believers that we have to respond to need. Look, everybody's here. There's this amazing need. There's this amazing opportunity. Not necessarily. Is it the will of the Father? And that happens as we spend time with the Father. This doesn't sound very spiritual, but Jesus said no. He said full on no right here. It's like, no, I don't care that everybody's there. That's great. I'm going to keep going because this is exactly the purpose of why the Father sent me. I don't think we're going to be able to live out the will of God in our lives unless we learn to say no. That we stop just responding to needs. There'll always be needs. And we start listening to the voice of the Father, going, okay, this is what you would want me to do. This is what you would have me to do. And it's often very different than what I would expect. And there's a part of us that likes responding to needs, don't we? You know, and, and sometimes it might be the right thing to respond to a need. There's many times where Jesus responded to a need, but he lived and he marched out of obedience to the Father, not just responding to needs. And he went preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. So he's preaching in the synagogues, and guess what else is taking place in the synagogues? There's demons in all the synagogues. And he's casting out demons as he goes throughout the whole region around the Sea of Galilee. We end tonight with a leper that approaches Christ. Now a leper came to him imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy is skin disease, would decay the nervous system to a lot of times lepers could touch a hot stove, not even realize that it was hot and, and burn their fingers. Lepers oftentimes would be walking around with missing some fingers. We know from the scriptures that if someone was leprous, they couldn't live in the cities, in the camps, in the villages. They had to be isolated. So imagine here you're doing your life and you catch leprosy and you can no longer live with your wife. You can't live with your kids. You can't do your job. You're in isolation. You're living with other lepers. You're, you're by yourself. There's no cure for leprosy. Only two places in the Old Testament were people cured of, of leprosy. It was a miracle of God. And he hears of what Christ is doing. This is very fresh. The, the ministry of Christ has just began. And he decides to take a risk. And he comes in a desperate plea. He's kneeling down. He's imploring. And he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. There's a parallel between sin and leprosy. I think there's a correlation. Both leprosy and sin bring death and decay. That's what sin does in our lives. That's what leprosy would do as well. Leprosy and sin bring isolation. Leprosy and sin cause us to be numb. Numb spiritually, leprosy, numb physically. Sin like leprosy can only be cured by Christ. Think about what he declares. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He knows that Jesus has the ability to make him clean. But he also knows that Jesus has to be willing to make him clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him. And he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus is moved with compassion. 
we'll find this several times in the Gospels. Christ is thinking about, what, what's this guy's life like? Has a heart for him. And he's moved to the place of taking action. And that's biblical compassion. Is when we're to- so touched by someone's state that we're, we're moved to take action. Jesus could have just spoke the words, I'm willing and you're clean. But instead, he touched him. And he touched him before he was cleansed. To show this guy love. To show him the love of, of the Father. Human touch is so powerful. Researchers tell us that, that we need it. When I was living in Nampa, Idaho, right after Bible college and, and school ministry, I was waiting tables, serving in a Calvary there. And one of the first assignments that they gave me to do was to start visiting a 19-year-old kid that was in jail and eventually headed to prison. And over a period of time, I developed a, a relationship with him. And the visitation was done through glass. There's big glass that was there. And you would talk, you know, through this little microphone system that would go back and forth. It's probably the fifth or sixth visit, and I'll never forget this. I wasn't much older than him. I was, I was 20, 21. And he put his hand up on the glass. I was like, what is he doing? You know, why, why is he putting his hand up on the glass? And then I realized that he was missing human touch. He was wanting me to take my hand and to put it up on the glass. You think about what it would be like the life of a, a prisoner. It's a life of isolation, isn't it? And he, he was longing for, here we were building a friendship where you would normally handshake, high five, and that was absent, and he places his hand on the glass. How long had it been since this leper had felt human touch? I mean, we take it for granted to hug our kids, hug our spouse, to you know, put an arm on someone's shoulder, pat, pat him on the back, and here Jesus, he touched him. Jesus wasn't worried about catching leprosy. And this is what I want you to hear about Christ, is he touches the grossest part of us. He touches the part of us that we are so ashamed about. We don't want anybody else to know about, that we try to pretend doesn't exist, but it's real in me, and it's real in you, and it's disgusting to me. I'm ashamed of it. It's sin. And Jesus says, I want to cleanse you. And I want to touch that, that part of you that you're so ashamed of. And then Jesus says, I'm willing. I'm ready to do this work. Jesus is more than willing to cleanse us from sin, isn't he? That's his mission. He came to save us, to die upon the cross, to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've never received Christ as your Savior and you're wondering, could God forgive me? Is he willing to forgive me? Is he willing for me to be his son, for me to be his daughter? Does he, does he really know me? Is he really aware of this sinful part of me? Yes. Yes, and he's died for you and he wants to touch that area of your life. And, and as believers, we still sin and we struggle with sin. We go, God, could you love me? Could you cleanse this, this area of my life? Could you, could you do a work in this area of my life? And he's saying, yes, I'm willing to do it. And this leper, he couldn't cleanse himself. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't bring transformation from sin apart from Christ working in and through our lives. 
I'm willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Immediately. Dude's probably looking down at his skin. Man, I got baby skin again. I lost that finger in that accident and it's back. I touched that hot stove and my nerves had been severed and complete restoration. And it happened in a moment. It happened immediately. Powerful. Jesus has some instructions for him and he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Leviticus 13, God put it in his word, in the law, If you're cleansed from leprosy, these are the sacrifices you need to take to the priests. The priests will inspect your skin. Sure enough, you don't have leprosy, you can be reintroduced to the community. This man couldn't come to the synagogue. He couldn't come to the temple. He couldn't come to the place of worship until he had been inspected by the priests. And notice, Jesus wants him to do this so that it would be a testimony to them, to the priests. How many times had they seen someone cured of leprosy? I'm sure they'd have a lot of questions. What happened? Well, Jesus, he touched me, he cleansed me. It was to be a testimony to them, but there's these odd instructions that are given here by Christ. It's like, you can't tell anybody, all right? This is my strict command to you. I don't want you going around telling everybody that Jesus healed you. What does he do with those instructions? Verse 45, However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. There's a lot written on this. Jesus wasn't using reverse psychology, going, well, if I tell him not to tell anybody, then he'll go tell everybody. It's really simple from verse 45, is Jesus didn't want the fanfare. And because of this man's disobedience to share it prematurely, now Jesus can't maneuver in the cities. He can't, can't get around without there being a huge crowd that is following him. What have you learned tonight from one day in the life of Christ? We see his ultimate authority. Imagine how impressionable Simon and Andrew, James and John are at this point in their first few hours of following Christ. And they hear him teach. They see him cast out a demon and they're amazed at at his authority. We see Jesus caring for a fever and absolute kindness. His love for the community to cast out demons and to heal the sick but then to rise up early to seek the Lord, to spend time in fellowship with the Father, then to touch this leper and to cleanse this leper. Allow Christ to have that authority in our lives where his teaching is at the utmost authority. Realize his power. It's no big deal for him to be able to cast out a demon to understand here this mystery and this beauty of fellowship with God, to take time to seek the Lord. 
Go for a walk tonight. It's a beautiful night. Share your heart with the Lord. Listen to his heart. Get up. Get up a little bit early tomorrow. Something wonderful about the stillness of the morning as the sun rises. As the sun, sun is set and just spend time with the Father. It's relationship. But then allow Jesus to touch the darkest part of you. The leprosy in our lives that we're so ashamed of. He's willing. He's able. He's wanting us to bring it to him. But you'll notice in this passage that Jesus responds as needs are brought to him. It's a fever. He responds. Demons brought to him. He responds. Sickness brought to him. He responds. Leprosy brought to him. He responds. Now, we don't know how he's going to respond. May not always be in the way that we would desire, but he will respond. He's longing for us to come and, and bring those things to him. Let's stand and pray. I hope you're encouraged tonight. We're going to continue in worship this evening. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We pray that we would have fresh amazement tonight at your authority, that it would be more than just fame, that it would be more than a movement that gets a a lot of people's attention, but we would be humbled by your authority, that we would want to be your disciple, that we would want to follow hard after you. And we bring those needs in our lives, whether it's sickness, finances, relationships, those things that oftentimes we think that you're too busy to care about, we we bring those to you right now. And Jesus, we also bring the leprosy, the sin. It's bringing damage in our lives. It's destroying us. It's hurting your heart. But yet you're willing to touch us, to change us. We pray for those that don't know you, that tonight would be the night that they surrender, that today would be the day of salvation. And for us as believers, that we would encounter you tonight, that right now as we sing, that we would draw near to you. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.